Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. Great program today. James Joyce is with me. Uh, he's a businessman, entrepreneur. He's been in journalism. He's been in public service. He's a fascinating guy. You're really going to enjoy it. Stay tuned. James Joyce, The Good Life is next. Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. So glad you've joined us. Uh, from wherever you are, you can always find us at goodlifetelevision.org. We're so grateful for so many of you joining us there from all around the world. I think like a hundred countries in the last year. It's fantastic, so welcome. Uh, goodlifetelevision.org is where you can find all the episodes as well as power clips where we kind of break, break down those episodes into moments that you'll like. And also Good Life Conversations podcast is up. And uh, we've just launched over the last month, and we're really excited about the response. So you can always find us. It's at all the platforms, Spotify and all the other ones. So Good Life Conversations is the name of the podcast. And uh, we're so glad you're with us. I'm so excited about my guest today. James Joyce is with me. James, welcome. Hello. How are you? Good. Good. I, uh, James is a businessman, entrepreneur. He's been a journalist. He's been in public service, working as a, as, a, as a director for State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, which represents about a million or so constituents here in the area where we're sitting, which is Santa Barbara, California. Um, James has had a number of involvements with boards and different foundations and organizations, so it's, he's got a really diverse background. I was going to first ask you about that. How did you kind of end up with this resume that's kind of a mile wide as far as your area's involvement? Uh, an accident, you know, you just kind of stumble into things and that's kind of been my uh, 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 mode for, for most of my life, right? I, I, when I was in college, I started as a student athlete and most student athletes, that's enough, right? Right. Well, nope, not for me. I got involved in organizations and had meetings and then became an RA and then worked for the newspaper. Just always been uh, involved in stuff, right? Huh. And so that's just been part of who I've been yeah. uh, uh, as, as a youth and into adulthood as well. And take us back to your youth. I, you grew up in Westminster, Maryland, yes, which is, I think, about 30 minutes from Baltimore. So yep. you, tell, tell us kind of what your upbringing was like and where you came from. So Westminster is an interesting place. It's, uh, uh, I, I later found that there's a, a Confederate general buried in, in a cemetery there. Um, really? The cemetery I walked past uh, every day to go to middle school, but didn't know it until, of course, I was, I was older. But uh, learning about the history of Westminster, I mean, it, it was the... the basically the holdup that allowed the Battle of Gettysburg to be won. There was a battle in Westminster. Huh. Um, and so that there was this, you know, knowing that there, there's this old school history, old school architecture. I mean, it's East Coast, uh, but it's predominantly white, right? P predominantly uh, uh, conservative. Um, you know, I, I, in middle school, I ended up with wearing cornrows, and that was a very risque thing in town, right? Really. Um, and so, you know, it was it was an interesting place to grow up. Um, but you know, there are areas of town where, uh, uh, you know, my family, friends were, and we just kind of hung out, had a good time. I mean, it wasn't like it was uh, dangerous or rough per se. Um, the only I guess the only negative thing was was uh, my high school was termed heroin high uh, because there had been a, a back in the late 90s a lot of uh, heroin overdoses from the time I was a freshman to the time I was I graduated four years later I knew of at least nine people heroin huffing alcohol overdose drowning those kind of deaths 
uh, oh my uh, through my through my town, and so that kind of lets you know it's a little. There's not a whole lot to do in town, uh, and so that's when you, those kind of uh, issues tend to tend to pop up. And so wow. um, it, it's interesting to see the conversation around addiction now uh, right. uh, because we, we we grew up in that yeah. environment, and so um, uh, uh, it, it's good to see that it's more widespread of a conversation. Uh, but it's a shame that it's still a conversation. Right. So you were dealing with that back then. Yeah. 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 So growing up, you mentioned that growing up is is you know a significant minority yeah. in terms of the numbers and talk about that. What? Did, how did that impact kind of how you've set forth? Because I want to get into some of the stuff you're doing, which sure. is really cool. But sure. Talk about that. Yeah, thanks, Dean. I, I think like the weird thing is like my elementary school was named after a black man. It was like the, the, the black edu educator in, in the county. Uh, my grandma went to Robert Moton High School. That was a segregated high school. He was the principal. Uh, uh, I went to Robert Moton Elementary because that was their way of preserving the legacy and history. And so uh, uh, it was odd that I went to a, 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 a elementary school named after a black man. I had a, a black art teacher uh, at a young age. And so that's not a typical path for somebody that would have grown up in an area like, like Westminster. Um, and so I did have some influences, but you know, I definitely had issues with teachers not knowing how to deal with an outspoken black kid in their class, right? Mm. That's a challenging thing. They don't want their authority challenged in front of the other class or in front of the other classmates. And so uh, uh, I, I, I suffered several suspensions. Um, when, when you hear about the, the statistics of how school districts suspend and, and expel black boys, particularly more than anyone else, that was me. Mm. Uh, I think by the time I was in middle school, I averaged about six or seven suspensions a year. Um, wow. Never enough to get me expelled, but it was usually speaking out, being confrontational. I learned the, the word insubordination real early. Um, <laughs> I was like, you're being insubordinate, huh? What is that? How did I do that? My mom had to, made me look it up. She was like, you don't know what it means. Look it up in the dictionary. And so there I did. Wow. Um, my mom was a major influence in me growing up, single parent. Um, she was a social worker. And so to see other folks in the community respond to her in a way of respect and uh, just the fact that she's being of assistance to them, whether it's, you know, parenting skills or uh, getting access to, to, to food stamps or something. I mean, my, that's what my mom did was a social worker growing up. Wow. And so I, I always joked her about when she would do, try some new discipline technique on me. It's like, what, what magazine did you read that out of this week? Like, she's always going to some conference and trying something on me or something. Wow. You ended up at Ohio University as a student athlete. Yeah. Um, and well, I want to talk about that experience, but also you, you, you were, and I don't know if you're still on the national board of, of the Student African American Brotherhood. I am. But I know you were involved with that. But talk about that and your experience in college. Sure, sure, sure. So when I went to college, I knew I wanted to get a journalism degree. And, and Ohio University at the time had one of the top 10 journalism schools in the country. Uh, I believe it was five at the time. And uh, that of all the schools that I applied to, Ohio University was the only one that rejected me. Um, they rejected really? me uh, from the School of Journalism. And so I, had, I, I ended up um, <laughs> canceling. I didn't go to NC State. I didn't go to Auburn. Uh, I didn't go to uh, uh, Western Maryland, which is now... Um, McDaniel College, um, though I got into all of those schools, right? I, uh, Pitt as well. Um, it was the rejection from Ohio University that I was like, mm, nah, y'all ain't doing that. Like, so I went and 
uh, uh, went into Ohio University through the College of Communications. I think it was a visual communications degree is what I started on, but worked closely with uh, advisors to be able to get out and get my degree in journalism, news writing, and editing in four years, uh, uh, not five, not six, in four years, wow. um, and, and graduated with that degree. Um, and so, you know, it, it was kind of go going to school in Athens, Appalachia. Uh, it's a very poor part of the country, but it's a college town. Um, and so it's about five and a half, six hour drive from, from where I grew up. Different state, whole different environment, whole different culture. Um, and so I immersed myself in that campus culture, got involved, um, you know, like I said, all kinds of things. You know, I became an RA, involved in the NAACP on campus, um, worked at the student newspaper. As I sold ads, I didn't write for it because I was so involved on campus. There was a conflict of interest on the news side, so I got to experience uh, ad advertising sales on that side, um, mm. which was an interesting mix, right? You know, a right. journalism guy doesn't normally do that stuff. Um, right. But, you know, when you're talking about like the interesting, diverse things, I, again, just falling into these things. I ended up working at the student newspaper because we were running a protest against the paper for their coverage or lack of coverage of black, uh, black culture on campus. Um, oh. And the publisher of the paper was in this town hall meeting and I was going in on him. And, and then he right there in the meeting says, well, why don't you come work for us? Um, and I was just kind of like that diffused the situation. I didn't accept right then and there. but. That's the kind of environment that kind of when you see something like that, it's like, OK, so being quiet isn't going to serve you too well. Just mm. keep speaking up. And there's time and time again. I mean, in college, I held an event, was president of my, my fraternity, the, the oldest uh, historically black fraternity uh, uh, in the country, uh, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, founded in 1906. My chapter on my campus founded in 1919, right? Wow. A, an old historic chapter. Uh, became two-term president of the chapter um, and at that time w was an RA involved in so many different things on campus and realizing that there's a black campus, there's a white campus. The two campuses didn't really mix. Like mm. I was the go-between because I was on student senate, I was doing things where I was involved and exposed. I was the token more or less. Um, and so that led me to, to, to then host, an or, uh, host a, a program called um, bridging bridging the gap uh, and it was basically bait, uh, bringing the leaders of Greek letter organizations the white Greek letter organizations the historically black Greek letter organizations into a room for a reception to meet one another and have conversations it was myself and another guy named James who was in some of my journalism classes and we were buddies anyway and he was a president of his fraternity it was the two of us there that's it no one else showed right and so um, the, that, I, I, looking back on it, that was the genesis of Coffee with the Black Guy, right? It was the same idea, the same notion, same uh, concept of just sitting down, having conversations and getting to know folks. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so you were a bridge builder in a sense. I mean, you were, you were thinking that way even while you were in college. A absolutely. And, and I mean, see, even looking back, I was a student athlete. Athletes don't get involved in organizations. They don't do things right. outside of that schedule right. um, and you know I ran track and and a lot of the guys that I, well, a lot of the folks in general that I ran track with we all got involved on campus and did things and and it was I guess it may have just been the era it may have been the, the mix of folks on campus uh, but you know that was the, the the kind of path that we set while we were we were on the yard and so um, 
you know, again, it served me well. I didn't particularly know what you're doing then. And a lot of times when you're young, you don't know what you're stumbling through. Um, But, you know, you just kind of stick to it and eventually it'll it'll work out. And in hindsight, you'll realize why the value in a lot of those things. And and, and now I, I can see that. So you were you ended up being an award-winning journalist. I mean, so you did you did pursue the journalism thing. I did. But then you ended up in public service. To talk about, did you always have in the back of your mind that you'd end up in public service or public life in some way? I always had in the back of my mind that I would not end up in public <laughs> service or public life. Right. That was always in my head. And as a journalist, I was I was you know just exploring curiosity, covering things, you know. First stories I'm covering are about tax abatements in the city of Gas City, Indiana, where the mayor is Larry Leach, and I have to interview him at the Ducktail Run, which is a classic car show. Like, come on, where am I right now, right? Like, that's what I, I dive into. And so, seeing uh, uh, what I was doing in journalism, and right, you know, finding out, you know, you're looking for the conflict point, you know, find out where the friction is, and that's the story. And so, uh, you do your general coverage and your your day to day, and you start to learn processes, you start to learn you know, how things work, what budgets look like, what, when things are off. Um, and then eventually you kind of realize that, well, I got the hang of this. I'm telling these people's story and they're, they're trusting me to tell their story in their community. And I'm an outsider in their community telling their story and they're trusting me with this. And so you grow into that. But then also when you're looking at the conflict, I see what the problem is. Right. And as the reporter, I see, OK, this person just needs to talk to this person. But my job is to report the story, not to make that recommendation. And so that always kind of frustrated me. It always kind of frustrated me uh, as a journalist about this whole not getting involved, not being a joiner. When I would go to a new town and I went to you know, Marion, Indiana, Yakima, Washington, Toledo, Ohio, I'd get to a new town and I'd anchor into the NAACP or my fraternity members to be able to like get some grounding in the community that helps me network, that helps me get contacts but at the same time it's it 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 exposes me to the like it it limits my ability to connect being a journalist and it limits my ability to be a member of the NAACP as a journalist because eventually I'm gonna have to cover what they're doing right so that's a really interesting point about journalism find the friction because that in right now it seems like a lot of people are you know talking about the media a lot they divide us, they divide us, they divide us. But what, what you're saying is that's kind of the point. I mean, well, I, in terms I of the story. Yeah, that the story narrative, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we, in J school, we're told that thousands of planes take off and land every day in this country, and that's not a headline. It's the one that crashes that makes the headline. Right. Like, that's the story. And essentially, when you look at it that way, that is the role, right? Um, when people are complaining about, you know, m- the media, the media are dividing, like the media is the fourth estate of our government. Right. Like, like we bailed out car companies, we bailed out airline companies, and we've just let the fourth estate disintegrate uh, to a mm. shadow of what it, what it should be and what it used to be, because the primary role is to be the watchdog of our government. Um, and, and when you, uh, you know, when you, just looking, you know, here in Santa Barbara, when you look at the newsroom, the number of employees in a newsroom and how that's dwindled over the past decade and, and, and maybe even 20 years, right? It, it's just been, uh, that's a travesty. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it, 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 we're all worse because of it. Uh, we don't have as many watchdogs out there holding folks accountable, and therefore things go unchecked, and that continues a, 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 a snowball effect. 
Inter- that's a really interesting point. Yeah. I had not thought about that. So you end up, so you're in journalism, you end up going into public service, working with a state senator. Talk about the transi- that transition and coming to California. Sure, sure. So in 2008, I was in Toledo, Ohio, was the education reporter in Toledo. If you remember Toledo, it was Joe the Plumber in 08, right? It was oh, battleground yeah. territory. Obama hung out in, in Toledo for three days prior to the final debate with John McCain. And so, like, I cracked that story because I, I, like, I, I was thinking about, like, okay, where in town could a bunch of people come and stay and be sequestered for a long time? And then I went to that location and I saw them doing a walk around with all the security agencies. And so that became my front page story. Obama's coming to town. It wasn't the best kind of scoop, but hey, it proved myself as a journalist in that newsroom yeah. at the time. And so um, that was an interesting place to be, you know, where things are. Uh, it's a battleground city, battleground territory, right, right on the border of Michigan. And so, seeing people coming and, and walk, you know, doing precinct walking for both Obama and uh, McCain and Sarah Palin. Uh, there was a day I was, you know, in the press pool with Sarah Palin as she made stops in Canton, Ohio, and Columbus, Ohio. And so, you know, being in the press pool with the with the the traveling gaggle of craziness. Um, and, and, you know, being able to see that side of things and then getting laid off a few weeks after that. It's journalism. I told you like, it's just a shadow of what it used to be. That's been the trend. Um, and so uh, it was a, a, a union uh, open shop, a guild shop, which means that there were rules. The last people in the door, the first ones out the door, I left. It was 18 degrees and 12 inches of snow on the ground, and I decided to come to Southern California. I was sick of that. <laughs> so. Uh, I came out to, to Southern California, ended up through some networks, getting a job at a for-profit education institute. Uh, and then that didn't work out for me because I felt ethically wrong about it. Um, ended up uh, unemployed for a couple weeks. A friend who uh, I was running a room from in her house uh, was the lead organizer for a cause, a social justice nonprofit. Um, she says, a friend of mine and former coworker who's a city councilman up in Santa Barbara needs some help with his campaign down here. He's running for state assembly. That was Das Williams. I did an interview in Starbucks. I got hired on his campaign, and the rest is history. He ended up winning, uh, brought me on to his staff, uh, did his uh, uh, communications and field rep uh, for him while he was in the assembly when Senator Jackson got elected two years later. Uh, she stole me away, brought me to Santa Barbara to first work as her deputy district director, uh, so just in her district leadership as she's navigating trying to represent a million people. Um, and then as her district director for the majority of the time. And, and um, it's just been a delight to work with her and learn so many things from her, um, see her tenacity on issues, and you know, to even argue with her. Those were fun, right? Mm. She's an attorney and she doesn't always, like, it's not always just like asking questions nicely. She starts peppering in questions and then sometimes I start peppering in responses and rebuts. And that's fun, yeah. <laughs> right? And yeah. we both have fun and respect one another for that. but understanding how that plays into the process of making the decisions and making statements uh, before crowds and making statements uh, 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 on the floor of the legislature. I mean, just seeing how all that unfolds has just been. um, And and the difference with journalism is, you know, when I was a journalist, I would see the problem. I'd say this person needs to talk to this person and I'd have to report the story. Well, in public service, I see that this person needs to talk to this person and I bring them together and have the conversation. It's a much more empowering situation, I, like, but 
I, I see the natural the natural transition into it based on my background. Right. Well, and let, let, that leads us perfectly to the next question in, in terms of this initiative that you've mm -hmm. been doing. Um, it's called Coffee with a Black Guy. Yep. And I, I'm just reading about it. I thought, what a great idea. Um, and what a, you know, especially in this time, yeah. it just seems like a great idea. So how, I mean, I, how did you get the idea? And then kind of what's your vision for it? Sure, sure. I'm not a genius. I stole it from law enforcement. Um, I, I found out through a fraternity brother of mine that the city of, of Hawthorne, um, they started Coffee with a Cop in 2011. And I'd, I'd seen it in Oxnard, I'd seen it in Santa Barbara, I'd seen it around Coffee with a Cop. But the concept is to humanize the badge and to be seen beyond their uniform. Mm. Okay, I, I, I get that, you know? Something about me wants to be seen beyond this, right? Somehow it's deemed threatening. People hate it. Like, I mean, like, there's animus in, in, in society against black skin. So I'm like, all right, I know how to, I, I understand that desire to change the narrative. Let's do something. Coffee with the black guy. Um, and it just kind of naturally came out. I, I, I remember, you know, probably it was 2015 or so, waking up one morning with the idea, calling one of my, my, my cousin and just like, hey, man, this is, listen to this idea. And he's like, oh, man, that's a great idea. All right, I got to go to work. Two hours later, I get a text from him. We own the domain name, coffeewiththeblackguy.com. Oh, that, nice. We had that and kind of sat dormant for about a year. Then rolls around the summer of 2016, and you have the killing of Philando Castile in, in Minnesota and Alton Sterling in Louisiana. The country is just re reeling off of this, these, these high-profile sanctioned killings from law enforcement. Right. Um, and... Those, those are the headlines. That's what's dominating the news. Yet I'm walking around the streets in Santa Barbara and people are avoiding eye contact with me. Like, you know, just acting like I'm not the black guy walking down the street and everybody else is white. Like, we know what's going on. Seems very inauthentic. And so I just decided to have black guy office hours, so to speak, right? Just pitch it out there, coffee with the black guy. There's a lot of things that's going on that you may not know how to process. I've been dealing with race since I was in kindergarten, right? Mm. Um, not always knowing how to process it, going through that anger, but then coming through the side of seeing, okay, I, I, I can see both sides. I can understand why hate may exist, but I'd like for you to explain it to me. If you're a member of the Klan, like, explain to me, like, why is it that, you, that, that, that there's hate against me? Mm -hmm. And it's usually like, rooted in, in mythology, rooted in lack of contact and interaction. And so, you know, like not letting things emotionally rile me up and, and, and that getting in the way of being able to have a conversation and listen. It's very difficult for people to listen when your, your temperature's red. Mm -hmm. So just keep the temperature cool, coffee, connection, conversation. That's, That's it. That's genius. Yeah. That's genius. Listening. Yeah. What an idea. What a concept. I mean, and, and it's perspective, right? It's, it's, it's building community, getting to know your neighbor. I mean, it, you, no. can, you can spin it any way you want to, but it's things we should be doing anyway. Right. Uh, we should be having authentic conversations. People say, you know, I have, I have black friends or I have black family members. It's great. Well, what do you talk to them about? Do you talk to them about the things that, that you want to talk about? Or are you really allowing them to, to open up and creating a space to provide that real perspective so you can learn from that? Like, you know, there, there's a great value in this perspective, right? Being able to navigate this world from this lens, from, you know, seeing how people interact with, with this frame. Um, like, I mean, it puts me, I feel, within, in, a, in a director's seat, 
right? right? I walk into a room, I'm the only black guy in the room, I'm in control. I know that there's people who are either going to want to come to me because I'm the only black guy in the room or want to go away from me because I'm the only black guy in the room. I understand the lay of the land, right? And, and, and so w once you, you, you kind of frame it and you look at it with that mindset, you know, I, I hate to use something like these, you know, motivational speaker terminology and stuff, but it's like, you, it's empowering to, to, to when you, once you change the narrative and you start to look at things from a power stance, right? And, and it's not necessarily a, a, a supremacy power stance, it's a, hum a humble power. It's, you know, if you look at where our country was before we had Barack Obama, like our country needed this black savior so to speak, right? If you look at, you know, what things are unfold in our society, like, and then who is constantly the one healing, like it's black women, like this past uh, election, right? And people are like, oh, you know, the Senate is no longer controlled by, by the GOP, and now we, whatever that means for folks, right? And so when you look at how these things unfold, like black folks have consistently stood up and showed up for America. The economic prowess of this country is based on the backs of black folks. Mm -hmm. And until we fully recognize and really swallow that pill and address it, it's going to be con it's going to continue to be used against us as a point of division. Mm -hmm. I argue it's a homeland security issue. Um, if you look at what happened in, in 2016 in our, in our recent elections and you say, oh, Russia interfered with our election, they fed fast false narratives, false narratives about what? things that we haven't addressed anyway in our own country. I bet you if we sit down and really have the, the reconciling conversations and actions to go along with that as a country, they're not going to have anything to divide, mm. right? Mm. Um, and so it's not their problem. That's our problem. Yeah. That's pow powerful. Great thoughts. I can't believe we're out of time, but, uh, but I, I, I wanted to mention... Um, that uh, in addition to all this other stuff that we've been talking about, Mr. Joyce is a candidate for mayor. I can see why now after <laughs> after talking to him for a few minutes. Um, but powerful, great work with everything you're doing, and uh, we commend you and applaud you. And we're looking forward to getting to know you better, and great. I'm sure a lot of people are. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. We'll see you next time.